Section 9 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Blue Pates and Schoppen. I know a child who, when she was asked where she would like to be taken for a summer's holiday, chose to forego the spades and pails of Ramsgate and Cromer in favour of the Isle of Athelney, if island there be because she wanted to find the hut where Alfred the Great burnt the cakes. I wanted to see Marburg, because I had read Kingsley's poem, and was interested in the pious lady whose husband would not let her be charitable. Meeting her with an apron full of loaves for the poor, he asked her what she was carrying, and God so willed it, that when she obediently opened the folds of her apron, flowers fell out of it and justified her piety. And one evening in autumn, as our train glided softly and sweetly, as trains do glide in Germany, out of one valley into another, till we came into the valley of the Lahn, which is the river on which Marburg is built, I was thinking, in a desultory manner, of my childhood's desire, and the saintly figure of St. Elizabeth of Hungary, Presently the train just slid into Marburg, and we got out and passed out of the station through a flower-besprint waiting room and into a bus, and jogged along to our abiding place, under the imposing shadow of the Elisabethen Kirche. And all the while I was thinking of Conrad of Marburg. I wanted to say that now to my grown-up lights, the builder of the Elizabethan Kirche seemed an uncommonly silly woman, but I'm always afraid of offending Joseph Leopold's Catholic susceptibilities. So I switched off from medieval sentiment to the heroine of a modern extravaganza, which I suppose every English person has read. I was now domiciled in the German university town that corresponds more closely to Oxford than St. Bon which to me suggests Cambridge. We all remember how Miss Zuleika Dobson, after having drowned the flower of Oxford in the Thames, calls for a Bradshaw and looks out a train for Cambridge, intending to do the same by the students of that university. But I do not think, with all respect to Max's heroine, that this would have come so easy, for though it might be urged by some Oxford fanatics that youth subjected for a term or two to its romantic and unique charm, is still capable of drowning itself en masse for the love of a lady. I don't think anyone would put up the same plea for Cambridge. The backs are too Tennysonian, not savage or Byronic enough. Cambridge would think twice about it. But of one thing I am positive, that such an outrageous sex campaign as that waged by this young lady at the English University would have been absolutely impossible at either Bonn or Marburg. Certainly not at Marburg. Bonn is less savage, less rococo, more accessible to feminine wiles. The boys of Bonn, even with the national precedent of Werther before their eyes, would think not twice but a hundred times before making fools of themselves over a mere female, Marburg would not entertain the idea for a single moment. Yet Marburg is surely a more romantic place than Oxford, 
it is living it has kept up its continuity with the past there are not so many dreaming spires but there are three very wide awake churches the castle at oxford is an inconsiderable ruin it is down there by the slums a mere appanage or lean-to of the railway station while the schloss at marburg is one thousand feet above the town and in the very centre of things dominating all the modern life of the place the river lahn is not so wide as the thames and there is no boating in particular to be had on it but the boar comes down from his lair in the hills to drink of it and the wild cat laughs in the woods that clothe its banks oh yes it is far more romantic for mere unconsidered peasant females there wear costume though professors daughters so haughty and advanced in ideas are kept plain much as they are anywhere it is a believe or used to be a standing grievance with eton masters ever since a young peer of seventeen ran away from thence with a mature english countess that they are ethically debarred from keeping a pretty daughter at home she is sent away on visits as much as possible if she is of the type that is likely to be upsetting it is quite immaterial to max or fritz at this period of their growth whether the daughters of their tutor are pretty or plain these young ladies may as far as he is concerned continue to reside in their father's house and tread the sharp cobbles of marble with no fear of being followed and sleep sound of nights without any danger of being serenaded plain or coloured max or fritz heeds her not to either her or his detriment but max and fritz are not quiet not at all they have plenty of fun but it is concerned with quite another goddess than venus they go in hordes to dine at some place in the woods smoke and drink and finally photographed with their arms around a goddess of sorts she is covered and wreathed with flowers but she is a beer barrel this is probably a safe derivative of such emotions as the student can spare from his studies he does not insist on a yearly carnival of sex such as may week or commem and it is not in the least necessary that his bed maker should be old or ugly no woman born at least no woman born on german soil could take him by storm and even if zuleika dobson that lovely exotic with her pink pearl and her black pearl her costumes and her engaging ways were to descend at the best hotel or come to stay with the professional uncle in the college she would not it is my belief be able to extract a glance from the splendid students with the cropped heads and the scarred cheeks who sit day by day at their special stammtisch in the ritter or the krone much less could she persuade them to throw themselves into the slow and sluggish line for her sake at least i think not i am bitter for i have never in my life met anything more impervious to feminine wiles than the german student i could not get so much as a look of intelligence out of any one of them of bored or annoyed intelligence even although on the first night of my arrival i did a thing calculated to stir such a one to the depths 
a thing that made the waiters blench with awe and hastily to interpose to forbid the sacrilege i made as if to sit down at the special table with the little bronze knight in armour standing in the middle of it bearing a banner inscribed with the magic words stammtisch headwaiter ernst warned me off just in time joseph leopold was too slow and a moment later only a moment later a stern handsome man with a large head and a shaven crown advanced with fine deliberation he had hung up his hat on a deer's antler in the little passage which led into the street and sternly bidden the great dane who followed him in to lie down great danes often lie down near me but i had long realised it was as much as my place was worth to pat a student's dog it is reserviert ernst informed me in a breathless whisper he meant the stammtisch placed in the best and warmest corner of the speisesaal the least draughty and at the same time not too far from the window it was the table that a newcomer would naturally turn to a low seat runs round the corner and overhead there is a locker built into the wall with the arms of the corps whose students are pleased to dine here engraved on it the door of the locker clicks as one student after another opens it with his key and abstracts papers from it or deposits the cap he is wearing anything of which he wants to be rid of for a few minutes a student can do as he likes he is everything at marburg there is a tremendous suggestion of insolence about these german hobbledehoys these teutonic gawks if indeed anything foreign can be gawky i begin to think the term was invented only for the young of the english at any rate of their contemporaries at oxford a hostess has been known to say when the question of her capabilities of entertaining them in the lump arose or one just asks them all and knocks their heads together and sees what comes of it footnote the fact is that there is much less difference between german university life and english university life as far as the personnel is concerned than between let us say greenwich time and central european time i have myself extra professorially entertained the german undergraduates and i have been confident of the woes of the german don's wife at being called upon to entertain towards the end of term time large numbers of her husband's students it is possible that the german student is a thought less snobbish than the english undergraduate but it's hardly more than a thought the german like the englishman is very much given to little personal cliques or to little personal studies that will monopolize the whole of his attention and for a senior in any way to arouse his interest in other or more general topics is to knock at very closed doors i have for instance a sort of commemoration dinner given by a german professor of history tried to arouse some sort of interest in the spotty boy sitting next to me as to the elective theory let us say of the british crown a subject one would say sufficiently interesting to anyone professing history as the occupation of a lifetime but this youth was interested solely in the handwriting of charlemagne and in the linguistic attainments of that great man 
he was that is to say professionally interested in these subjects but what immediately occupied his attention was how much of the furniture of a student called affectionately the dicker hans he'd be able to afford to purchase next term fat hans having obtained his doctorate with a thesis on the laws of charmaine and being about to vacate the desirable rooms that he had hitherto occupied over a port butcher's shop in the frankfurter strasse j l f m h imagine these classic shaven heads of germany that i'd endeavour to describe presently being knocked together or treated with anything approaching to the disrespect and contempt which i have seen poured on the heads of the flower of english youth at oxford or cambridge i have watched them caught at such an entertainment massed in a doorway too shy to either get in or out or leave the asylum of the herd the german students are men of the world they will look like men at any rate the percentage of spotty boys which make up the hordes of the english university is far less and the spots and boils of german youths are produced by quite another cause i am being mysterious but indeed i was myself mystified at first i had heard that youth's hope and manhood's aim in german universities was very different from that embodied in wines and bump suppers and silver football cups and larks altogether not omitting a slight very slight leaning towards the successful acquirement of scholarships yet the insolence of these boys was not as the insolence of prussian officers proud unlettered and empty-headed it was the influence of the savage intellectual the ferocious educated a bookworm in a german university can be a swashbuckler too a mugger-up of scientific facts can collect honourable scars as well Footnote. I suppose this is physically possible, but actually it is much rarer than that an English Lord Chief Justice should possess an oar with a blade painted blue. The fact is that German university life is going through a period of change. Regarded as an apparition in an institution devoted to study, the core student is a phenomenon of the most singularly undesirable and all the efforts of german professors of to-day are directed towards diminishing their number in favour of increasing that of the unattached it has always seemed to me that the whole machinery of german education is extraordinarily wrong-headed and must prove fatal in the end to the german race if some such change as that which the german professoriate is trying to bring about be not very speedily effected these poor boys i give these views as being purely personal are treated at school with an educational brutality that is almost incredible in the civilized world they are hideously overworked they are unnaturally stimulated by their parents they are treated to the most brutal sarcasm by their repressed schoolmasters if in any particular they fall of absolute efficiency the suicide tale of school children in germany is without any exception whatever the most hideous feature of modern life i think no one will deny this who considers how worthy of tears a thing it is 
that a young child should commit suicide because it has failed to pass an examination. Yet this suicide rate is extraordinarily high in Germany. But once they have matriculated into their university, the boys are turned absolutely loose upon towns singularly full of what are called temptations. They have no supervision of any kind. There is no gating. There are no chapels. The normal career of the German student, of the German student who by the grace of God gets through, is that he should spend two years upon the bummel in the sort of pursuit so vividly described by our author, drinking beer, fighting duels, upsetting sentries in their boxes and making night hideous by howling at the doors of women of the town. In the meantime, they contract huge debts, which their miserable fathers, who are mostly small officials or Lutheran pastors, have to bankrupt themselves in order to pay. If these proud creatures be not too far sunk in debauchery, their third years they will spend in a scramble for items of knowledge that is almost more ignoble than their former pursuits. For it has struck me very strongly when lecturing at German universities or attending lectures given by other professors that what takes place is not the pursuit of learning for the love of a mellow and lovable thing. It is a frantic and bitter chase after items of knowledge, each item of such knowledge being worth, let us say, fifty fennings a year more to the student acquiring it when he shall have reached the age of fifty. It seems to me, therefore, that the whole system is exceedingly pernicious, certainly to the body, and decidedly undecorative and ungracious for the mind. But, of course, other people will have observed other things, and to the debit balance one may set the fact that one or two spotty boys at Berlin or Jena will certainly be interested, really and unashamedly interested, in the handwriting of Charmaine or the Rasch Data Congress. They will not be ashamed of these interests, and they will not conceal them out of the idea that it is more high-spirited to be exclusively interested in the topic of who will be head of the river. And eventually they will be given posts as under-tax collectors or second-class post-office clerks in the state to which their university belongs. J. L. F. M. H. End footnote. Entranced, I used to watch these tall, fine fellows entering in with their obedient dogs, their handsome sticks, and their noble thirsts, which they extinguished in such manly, mighty shopping. One by one, they dropped in, with a nod or a tug, to whoever had dropped in before them, flung an order to Ernst, and then buried their noses in their mugs, and in the profoundest college gossip, for so I suppose it was, I used to refer my curiosity to Joseph Leopold, who has been a student himself, but now wears enough hair to cover what in these boys used to attract my eyes and distract me from my dinner. In my humble place in the outer hall, I used to sit and watch those wonderful grey-green craniums, like a piece of polished jade or pale lapis lazuli, with a network of vague lines crawling right and left and across. I once possessed a Japanese doll. I remember its mild, broad head, so like a baby's, 
so much out of proportion to the rest of its body, and on which the first faint adumbrations of the down that would soon be hair were traced by the hand of a skilled Japanese artist in faint patches of an electric blue colour. And the head of this doll was exactly like the head of any German student who was fulfilling the duties incidental to his position, and who means you to know it by these presents. He is not an escaped convict. Not even a convict would stand being shaved and pared down to the very quick, like this. Nothing but fanaticism of a sort could accomplish the state of mind which endures willingly, nay proudly, such an appalling act of disfigurement. No, this student that I see before me has simply proved his courage, and is continuing daily to prove a state of courage that no man could impugn. He has gained a position that is eminently worthwhile in this troublesome world of pugnacious fellow-students, with their sharp, flat, duelling swords so dreadfully handy. For he is a duelist, and these are honourable scars gained in single combat. He has shown the stuff he is made of, and proved his manhood in half a dozen or so fights. Why should he allow the marks of his courage to fade away on cheek and jaw, when they are a sign for all adversaries to stand off and not provoke him? It is glory, glory that might fade, but is not allowed to do so. To that end, salt and other disturbers of natural healing are rubbed into the raw wound. I repeat, it is worth while. What matter that your sweetheart can hardly look at you without laughing, or your wife luxuriate in your fond connubial gaze without dreading a mishap? You infallibly suggest to outsiders l'homme qui rit, and though Victor Hugo implies that the love of Duchess Josiane stood the shock, we are not told whether the grin of the romantic mountebank was not perpetuated in some English nursery. Josiane was an English lady of the court of Queen Anne. The standard of looks in Germany is not, and perhaps never was, so high. The German Frau, too, is reported submissive, and knowing the provenance of these scars, does not jest at them, but respects and cherishes her doughty knight of the rueful countenance. The institution is as old as the hills. Though these combats are nominally forbidden, it is not easy to carry out the law and fly in the face of national custom. Duels used to be fought in the open, not necessarily under the sky, but in some large semi-public hall or room in the house of the corps on whose behalf the fight is undertaken. However, the forces of sweetness and light have objected, and the authorities are formally charged to prevent it. The belligerents and their ring of friends go out to some rather distant clearing in the woods, driving there with some slight pretense of secrecy. They take a competent surgeon along with them, for he is quite sure to have some work to do. Certain self-preserving preparations are gone through before the two combatants face each other. They put up masks to shield the eyes and gorgerettes to protect the throat. But the top of the head, the cheeks, the nose and mouth are left vulnerable. 
the favourite stroke of the flat swords used in this ferocious game seems to be directed at the top of the head the result of the dexterous cut at once provides a cunning piece of work for the surgeon supposing you slice with the thin sharp knife used by the professional dispenser of ham in a pork shop the top of a very thin-skinned orange that has not been boiled to make it look big and swelled you do not slice it quite off but up to the last tenuous piece of connecting fibre then suppose someone else forthwith lays it neatly on again pressing the edges closely together and with dexterous needle and thread makes the work sure the thin-skinned orange is a good parallel to the thinly covered scalp of the student from which his brother duelist with the flat of his sword neatly takes off a layer of skin and whistle the delicate operation of joining it again is the surgeon's job the appearance of the head when healed will be that of nearly all students heads the scars lay in circles all round the top of the skull instead of criss-cross you can sit at concert or cinematograph and contemplate at your leisure something like a blank school map demonstrating facts of physical geography the watersheds and rivers will be indicated in faint blue hues meandering over a pallid dimly shaded surface and that is what your eyes rest on for the whole of the evening and you are glad to be spared such a prolonged vision of the cuts over the cheek or jaw i cannot no i cannot be brought by joseph leopold's arguments to see the justification for such voluntary imposition of physical ugliness you mouth you ape you make yourself faces says hamlet and such faces the swollen puffy cheek bloated like the contents of a pan of red-coloured jam that bubbles as it comes to the boil or seared or drawn inwards as if all the teeth had been pulled out through the livid cheek there is no excuse for a man making such a beast of himself to see for the head pass en cours the proud protagonist may condescend to go hair over it when the time for his youthful follies is past at any rate he is obliged to wear a hat every man and woman too must in germany it is a terrible solecism to omit the head covering but this grotesque rictus which meets you suddenly round a street corner before you have time to avert your gaze makes you long to degrade courage from the rank of the virtues these cuts as soon as they are perpetrated have to be attended to on the spot as i have said and this is where the crux the last fine shade of stoicism comes in it is not enough to endure the evil the warrior must endure the cure as well without flinching sitting stiffly in a wooden chair it may be in the heart of the spring woods with brooks rippling and birds calling with his victorious enemy and all the members of his corps standing attentive round him the gory victim of a superior sense of honour must suffer in cold blood the exceedingly painful business of being sewn up without flinching in the very slightest degree the practice needle goes in and out the birds sing on and the brook ripples and a dozen or so of eager eyes are fixed on him 
he must not show by moan or movement that he is a man of feeling. To wince, to flinch, the flicker of an eyelid is to be shamed, disgraced and cast out from the corps whose honour he has fought for. Until this end he must fight or all is in vain. And it is fact that the duelist generally stands the ultimate test of courage successfully and is not afraid to fight again another day as soon as his reputation grows a little stale and needs renewing in the eyes of his compeers. This is the sort of man who possesses Marburg in and out of term time. Even in the vacation, the Stammtischen are fairly crowded. The streets in vacation are rather empty because the students take the opportunity of long walks in the country when not recalled hour by hour for classes and lectures. And the country round Marburg is not tainted with suburbanity like the environs of Oxford where you have to wade through miles of mean streets before you come even to the Port Meadow, or Cambridge, where you may walk for miles and miles and find nothing more rural than Trumpington or Chelsford. But you can walk out of the main street of Marburg, past the railway station to the Werder, or go by the woods over the Augustenberg, or by steamer down the Lahn, an affair of twenty minutes, and then you are in the country at once. The steamer is a little motorboat engineered by a boy and a half-witted mate. The Lang is like a backwater of the Thames, or the Warwickshire Avon at Stratford. And when I was ill, I found this little silly steamer ride very soothing. It took us slowly, stiffly puffing me, to a village of no particular beauty or importance, with a cafe in a dull, stony garden, below which the steamer stopped. There were a few tables with check table covers on them. You could sit there of an afternoon and watch the dull folk landing or see the train for Castle disappear under the tunnel on the other side of the bank and watch the little moorhens ducking about and the water rats setting out across the river till a stone thrown by some idle tea drinker headed them back. It used to move me to a weak frenzy when I saw a solid, lazy German stand up and try to defeat the poor beast's nice little energetic scheme. Then the coffee and milk in thick jugs would come, and flammkuchen, a horrid contrivance of cold pie crust with stewed plums strewn on it, which I could not have been persuaded to eat in England and steamboat loads of dull, heavy, tame people would come up, and I could touch their hats with my hand as they passed up the landing stage under the balcony of the tea garden, but I was too weak. And soon the daylight faded. It was late September, and the railway arch leading to the tunnel grew dark and portentous, like a troll's cave, and swathes of oily mist began to hang over the river. Then we descended the water stairs and puffed along in the low boat until the towers of the Elizabethan Kirche loomed big and near. Sometimes we walked to Raubach over the quiet, ordinary English-looking fields. One could picture Faust and Wagner, students both, taking their memorable walk across these cultivated hills and discoursing of forbidden pernicious things while the dreadful black poodle 
who turned up from no one knows where and accompanies them, circles ever nearer and nearer through the corn stalks. Heinrich Faust and Wagner are both men of the world, well versed in all the current magic of society devil lore. They know both of them quite well that the poodle is the devil. They are not afraid, but Faust's friend Wagner does not quite like it. He says something, not much, about the poodle's inconvenient shadowing, and those few calm remarks, their slightness, give a very complete feeling of artistic discomfort and diablerie. But when I was recovering, we used to get up as far and as high as the Wilhelmsturm, perched on the very end of the Great Moor, and then I found myself in a region as wild as the Lake District in England. I had to go round the easier way, which is the longest, but at every turn of the zigzag we met perspiring frows being positively boosted up the steepest slopes by their husbands and sweethearts. They did prodigies of endurance, these women, and their men were strong and kind. I no longer need to wonder how the great trilithons of Stonehenge were brought to Amesbury. Husbandly devotion and the joy of a holiday can work miracles. And there was a kermesse going on on top. The great barrels of beer which these brave souls were to drink had got up there too, and in much the same way, no doubt. If you go west towards Kappel and up to the Frauenberg, you find yourself en plein pays de geste. But it is a long way to the queer-shaped volcanic hill covered with ruins of different periods, ghost-haunted, full of buried treasure. Here there is a lonely forester's lodge where a family has lived for generations. You drink tea there, I mean coffee. And the old grandmother in her decent black gown, her peaked face, looking like the shadow of her personable daughter-in-law in the prime of life, and holding a little sticky grandchild by the hand, comes and asks you how you like the sand cushion, and wishes you Godspeed on your walk home. And the walk home rather late, with the sun making haste to be down, and you hope it won't be before you get home, but you know it will. How queer it is. You walk along timidly on soft, leafed, bestrewn ways, under the shade of tall pine trees, so high that between the lower part of their thick boles the tricksy sun that has nearly set plays hide-and-seek it seems at one time utterly gone out and departed this side of the earth at another gleaming sudden and angry between the dark bars like a woodcutter's fire you hear the crunch of your own tread pit-a-pat the forest is so big and you are so little and every now and then you stop and think that you hear the rustle of a deer or a wild boar. Es kann vor sein. It might easily be, says Joseph Leopold. Yes, even Faust and Wagner, with their conversation so skilfully woven of philosophic doubts, would seem modern here. Mailed knights shall be riding to the succour of distressed maidens, I should see the shiver of grey steel flickering across the vistas to be lost again in the woodland shades. 
it is not only strangers but quasi-strangers like myself who feel the uneasy charm that hangs over these birdless thickets once we had been to a kermesse up at the Frauenberg, a scene of gaiety light costumes dancing merry-go-rounds and happy people drinking beer over wooden tables up there on the hill among the ruins but still when the sun began to go down there was a fearful return journey back to marburg to be faced people started in company and like grimm's little tailors they all sang to scare terror away Joseph Leopold always chants in a loud voice the leader of his country, and his compatriots seem to like it. There is an Austrian yodel song. Drunten auf dem grünen Auer steht ein Birnbaum so blau. And if one meets, as we did that day, three of the bells of the Kermesse returning home to recounter the little triumphs to the Mütterchen in Marburg, be sure that they will be wreathed together arm in arm, walking in step, and singing in unison some such song as Joseph Leopold's. They are Catholics, so he tells me, for they are not in costume. Catholics repudiate the Kaiser's encouragement of Protestant survivals. We lose sight of them. They walk faster than we do, and I am oppressed by the sense of the hour, and full of an unreasoning terror lest we miss the way, for the sun has really gone down the light has forsaken the green leaves and the colour of them is heavy and vapid and the chills of night begin to creep in it is always thus and i am always afraid it is getting too dark to study the blue and red and yellow marks on the tree trunks that tell us the way to go we are embarked on a yellow trail and it behoves us to examine nearly every tree at least i think so though Joseph Leopold doesn't. I'm afraid I shall hear a wild cat scream. The last journeyman disappears. There is a sudden declivity in the path, and the sound of the pretty girl's carolling fades out of hearing. All my days in this land are rounded off by a silence, the silence of a German forest. End of section 9